Jesus was arrested, betrayed, arrested. He was brought before the the, uh, Jewish Sanhedrin that was their governing body. He was charged with blasphemy for identifying too closely with God. And the penalty of that is death. Uh, The Romans don't care about that. So the charges are spun to make them political. That way there's something that the Romans can use to to kill him. The Jews can't kill him and they need him. They want him dead. The Jewish leadership wants him dead. And so these, the charges are, are twisted a bit. They say he's leading a rebellion, a revolt. He's sedition, this whole idea of him being a king. And so they bring him before Pontius Pilate, who's the head of the Roman government in this area. Pilate sees through it. He says, I, I haven't, there's nothing wrong with this guy. He hadn't done anything worthy of death. But the uh, Jewish leaders continue to push for Jesus' execution. Pilate caves out of fear or self-preservation or something. And so Jesus is condemned to die for for claiming to be a king, which would make him a threat to Caesar. So we're going to pick up today looking at his crucifixion and at his death. This is starting in verse 32. As they were going out, so that's Jesus and the guards... They met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Uh, That's like a a narcotic, so that would have dulled the pain for him a bit. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him. A better idea than robbers would be um, revolutionaries. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour, that's noon, until the ninth hour, that's three, darkness came over all the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. So a little uh, recap here. You've heard sermons on this and maybe seen movies about this, but just so we're all on the same page. Lots of different ways someone can be crucified. The Romans had a method. Uh, It would begin with the flogging, so that's uh, getting beaten with a whip, and the end of the whip would have these little pieces of metal or bone, and the purpose of that was to soften up the victim. So Jesus was flogged, I think it was in verse 
27 we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Uh, some prisoners, did, they didn't survive the flogging. And so he would have been flogged. And then uh, Romans crucified on a T. And so you would have had the vertical uh, permanently in the ground. And the, the, the prisoner, the condemned man, would carry the horizontal beam. So that's what Jesus was carrying. Gets too heavy for him. He's too weak. That's why they need this guy, Simon, to carry it the rest of the way. Get to the crucifixion spot, which would have been in public. This was something that they did in full view of everyone. Only the worst of the worst got crucified. It was an excruciating way to die. It was very degrading. Normally, the people who were crucified were naked. There's, Jesus may have been allowed to wear some clothes because it was so close to the Passover feast, and the Jews would have been offended by, by the sight of you know, naked people hanging on the side of the road. So he may have been allowed to wear some clothes, uh, subject to public mockery and ridicule, all of the things that you see here. So Jesus gets to this site, uh, then they would um, affix his hands to the cross. They'd either tie his hands up or they would use nails. We know from John's gospel they used nails. They would have driven nails right through his wrist. Your wrist is strong enough to hold up your body weight. One on each hand, one on each side, holding him up. They would have um, affixed his feet to the cross as well. Again, they used a nail to do that. His knees would have been bent so he couldn't push up off the nail. Uh, maybe a little piece of wood right around the small of his back where he could rest, put some of his weight on, which actually all that did was prolong the process. Um, one of the things with crucifixion, why it was so uh, torturous, was that none of the major organs of your body were affected and you didn't bleed much. So the way you died is you just got tired of breathing. You got to where you couldn't literally take a breath and you suffocated from exhaustion. It took people several days to die when they were crucified. Normally, Jesus died very quickly, mercifully so. And so that's kind of the process. He's got these two uh, revolutionaries on either side. Most likely, the cross that he was on was made for Barabbas. If you remember, he was the one who Pilate said, which one of these two guys do you want me to let, you let go, Barabbas or Jesus? And they said, let Barabbas go. So they just put Jesus in his spot. Um, the charge was king of the Jews. So again, that's this idea that he was leading a revolt or a rebellion, that he was a threat to the Roman government. And uh, noon gets dark till three, and then at three is when he dies. That's when he lets out this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's several supernatural signs that are all accompanying his death. One, obviously, it's dark in the middle of the day. You've got these earthquakes. You've got this, this idea that we only see in Matthew of other dead people, saints, Old Testament saints being resurrected and entering into Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection. That ties into this idea that you see in 1 Corinthians that he's the firstborn from among the dead. But the most significant is this curtain being torn in two. It's not a curtain like that. It's a four-inch thick curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, or you may have heard it referred to as the holy of holies in the temple. So the, most, the, the holy place is where all the priests did their work. That, if you were a priest, that was, your, that was your workspace. That's where you did your thing. The most holy place is where God was said to live on earth. It's where does God dwell on earth in that little cube of a room behind that really thick curtain? And nobody was allowed to go in there except the high priest, and that was once a year on the Day of Atonement, and that was only after he had jump through some hoops with some sacrificing and cleansing himself and all of those kinds of things. A big deal um, for anybody to enter the most holy place because the idea is if you do, you're going to die because you're in the most holy place and you're not holy. So it's God's mercy 
in his mercy, he sets up this curtain to shield his people from his holiness. And at Jesus' death, that curtain is ripped into which way? Top to bottom. Kind of this picture is God tearing this curtain and inviting people into his presence. If you want to read more about that, read Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews 9 talks about the fact that uh, the way into the Holy of Holies was barred. It was, we, we couldn't access the Holy of Holies prior to Jesus' death. And then Hebrews 10 talks about the fact that his death made a way by his blood. We can now enter fully into the presence of God. That's, again, the most, out of those three signs, that's the most significant one for us. The others are neat, but the one that's most significant for us moving forward is this idea that Jesus' death makes it possible for us to enter into the presence of God, which is something that in the Old Testament no one was allowed to do except the high priest, and again, even then, only once a year. And we have full, free, unfettered access into the very presence of God because of what Jesus has done for us. I was thinking about this, and again, knowing that this is a story that we've all uh, heard and read probably multiple times, the thing when I read it that always comes to my mind is why? Why did it have to play that way? Uh, You may have wrestled with this. Most likely you know someone who has a big objection to the whole idea of Jesus as our Savior is this... Some people say that's divine child abuse. You have the father sacrificing a son. What parent would ever do that? And so one of the questions I want us to look at this morning is, well, why did Jesus have to die? On one level, you can say, well, he committed a capital crime, and that's he just he got his punishment. He was wrongly convicted, but he was convicted, and so that's what happens in this day and time. If you were convicted of a capital crime, you got crucified, and so that's what happened. And on the most I guess, superficial level, that's true. On a deeper level, we would say, well, he had to die because the Bible says so. Tied up with Jesus' sense of identity and mission was the fact that he had to be crucified. Three different times in Matthew, he says, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. He was keenly aware of the fact that that this was um, intrinsic to who he was as the Christ or as the Messiah. He had to die, but all that does is push the question back one step to me because I want to say, well, the reason the Bible says so is because God inspired the Bible to say so, so why didn't he inspire something else? How come that? Why? Again, what, what's, the, what's the point in Jesus' death? There's multiple ways we can go with that. I was thinking of one thing in particular. If I gave you two words to describe God, I don't know what two you would pick. For me, it's holy and love. Those two words describe just about everything there is to know about him in terms of his character and his nature. Just about everything else you could fit under one of those two umbrella concepts, his holiness and his love. His holiness really speaks to his perfection, the idea that he's 100% good, there's not a hint of darkness or wickedness or evil in him. He's totally light, there is no darkness in him at all. That's in James. Again, perfection, we kind of toss that word out perfect a lot of times. God is literally perfect. He's holy. He's also loving. That was that first John says God is is love. There's this idea and love is not this gooey um, emotion that God feels towards us. He may feel towards us, but what's underlying all of that is this rock solid commitment to say I'm going to do what's best for you even at great personal sacrifice to me. I'm going to do the best thing for you. I'm going to do the best thing for you 
even at great personal sacrifice. That's what biblical love is. And those two concepts, to me, really encompass all of who God is. He's holy, he's perfect in every way, and he's loving. He's absolutely committed to our well-being, even at great personal cost to himself. And the cross brings both of those concepts together. You see his holiness and his love displayed in one event at one time on the cross. You can see this throughout the New Testament. Here's a couple of verses just to let you know I'm not pulling something out of my hat here. Romans 3, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. That phrase, sacrifice of atonement. So what's going on? God's wrath is his righteous anger towards sin. Wrath for us has bad connotations, but biblically God's wrath is justified. It's his righteous anger towards sin. And what Jesus did is he said, I'll be a sacrifice of atonement. I will take the wrath. He appeased God's wrath. He said, that wrath that is righteously directed towards sin, I'm going to take that on myself. That's why he's a sacrifice for us. Through faith in Jesus' blood, he did this. Why did God do this? To demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, God had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So he's talking about everyone who lived prior to Jesus. He, had, he hadn't held their sins against them. He passed over their sins in a lot of ways. Everyone you read about in the Old Testament who we would say are saints, Abraham and Moses and David and Esther and all of these people, but, but they lived before the time of Jesus, so how are their sins taken care of? It says here, God passed over them. He was looking forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. The people in the Old Testament are looking forward to it. He left their sins committed beforehand unpunished. God did this to demonstrate his justice now at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You see this idea. God is perfect. He can't, he has to deal with sin. He has to because he's perfect. Again, in him there is no wickedness, there is no evil, there is no shadow. That's why you have the curtain because people like, me can't we can't get through the curtain or we're gonna fry and so he puts it he puts up this veil and says you stay back until my wrath is satisfied and his wrath was satisfied on the cross he dumped all of that onto Jesus kind of the theological term for that is substitutionary atonement don't ever say that nobody's gonna know what you're talking about that's what it is it's this idea that Jesus was a substitute for me he took my place to appease, to atone for my sin, to take on him the wrath that's rightfully mine because of the sins that I have committed. That's what's going on on the cross. It's this display of God's holiness. 1 Peter 2.24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Again, you have that idea of righteousness, of holiness coming to play. So the cross is where God's holiness is manifested. He deals fully and finally with evil. He says, I'm not just going to let sin just run rampant. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to judge the wickedness in people. And he does it on the cross. It's also where we see his love most fully displayed. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. There's that idea Atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. There's this idea that, again, if love is 
says, I'm going to do what's best for you, even at great personal cost. The cross is the ultimate example of that. The best thing for us is to have our sins forgiven so we can enter into a relationship with God. And what God says is, I'm going to pay the price for that. You've sinned, and I'm going to pay the price for your sin in order to be able to reconcile you to me. It's amazing when you think about it. We're the ones that broke relationship. He does all the work to repair it. Does that ever happen? We're the ones that have ruined the relationship. We're the ones that have rebelled and walked away from him. And he's the one that does all of the work to reconcile us to him. This great love that he has for us. And both his holiness and his love we see coming together at the cross. And you need both. Holiness without love. He's a terror. You can't approach a God like that. You're scared all the time. You're waiting for the other shoe to drop. You're waiting on the lightning bolt, the piano to fall on your head. Whatever the picture is, that's holiness without love. That's a recognition of his perfection. It's a recognition of the standards that he has set for us and a recognition that I don't meet him and I'm wondering when he's going to zap me for that. Some of you live in that kind of vague sense of dread. You know God loves you, you're just not sure how much. And so you walk around and you're kind of, you've got the calculator running in your head. You get his holiness, and that's good. Do you really understand his love? I'm not so sure. There's not security there for you. If if you would say your dominant emotion when you think of God is fear, you may not have both his holiness and his love mixing together very well. And this is kind of a broad stereotype that tends to be the Muslim view of God, Allah. He's 100% just. Not a lot of love there at all. And he's going to pay back people for what they've done. Thankfully, we don't serve a God like that. It causes you to live in fear and terror, constantly wondering if you've got more pluses than minuses in your book. Love without holiness, that's what people say they want. They want Santa Claus, this God who can just say, hey, listen, it's okay. Isn't that what we do when we forgive people? We just say, it's okay. I don't make you bleed for me if you sinned against me. I just I say it's all right. So how come God can't do that? We all have these justice buttons in our heart, and they're different. Some people, it's stuff to do with kids, and other people, it has to do with poverty. For other people, it has to do with if people aren't telling the truth or they're taking things that don't belong to them. But for all of us, there's some things that we read about or hear about, and it makes us mad when people get away with things. There's this part of it that's just not right. We may say it's not fair. That's not right that, some, that somebody got away with doing that. We want to see that evil at a minimum, exposed, and honestly, we want to see it punished. Maybe not in us, but in other people, we want to see it punished. We have this innate sense of justice that says that needs to be taken care of. Could you honestly worship a God who never, ever addressed the problems of sin and wickedness and evil in the world? Could you worship a God who would say to a Hitler, hey, it's okay, just six million? Could you, how do you work? You can't. You can't get our mind. That God's not worthy of anything particularly our lives. We need both his holiness and his love. Yes, we want to recognize this great love that he has for us that calls us into a relationship with himself. We also want to recognize he's going to deal with evil and he's going to deal with wickedness and he's going to judge all of that. Thankfully for us, as Christians, we're saved from his wrath. When you say you're saved, that's what you're saying. You're saved from the wrath of God. You're saved from his righteous anger, his just anger at the sins that you've committed. And so as a Christian, I can say, I deserve, I deserve judgment. 
But what I've done is I've taken the deal that was on the table, which is he made him who had no sin to be sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. So I've just made a trade. It's not saying I haven't sinned. It's not saying my sin isn't for real. It's not saying I haven't hurt people. It's not saying there's not wickedness in me. It's saying rather than me paying the price for that, I'm going to let Jesus pay the price for that. That's the offer that he made. And in exchange for my sin, he gives me his righteousness. And so God treats me accordingly. That's what it means to become a Christian. Can you worship, could you worship a God who didn't deal with sin? I couldn't. You couldn't. You couldn't give your life to someone who winked at murder or rape or genocide or injustice. You can't do that. And he doesn't ask us to. At the cross, he brings both of these things together, his holiness and his love. Here's a quote somebody sent me this week from a guy named David Pawson, Unlocking the Bible. God is consistent. He does not change in character. He is a unique combination of justice and mercy. We're saying holiness and love. If you stress one more than the other, you will get an unbalanced view of God. If you think only of God's justice, you get too hard a view of him. If you think only of his mercy, you get too soft a view of him. In one case, there will be love, but no fear. And in the other case, there will be fear, but no love. God's justice means that he must punish sin. And his mercy means that he longs to forgive it and pardon it. This tension for God is only resolved at the cross because only at the cross do justice and mercy meet. Sins are both punished and pardoned at the same place and at the same time. Jesus takes the punishment and we get the pardon. That's the cross. That's why Jesus had to die. It's the only way for both God's holiness and his love to be demonstrated and justified, if I can say that word. Only at the cross could both of those things come together with integrity. Only at the cross could he with integrity deal with the wickedness and the sin and the evil in the world and honor the fact that he is this loving God who desires relationship with us. The cross where God's justice and mercy meet. Question for you this morning. We're going to take communion here in a second. It's a very tangible reminder of Jesus' death. When you think about God, if I again, what are your two words? They don't have to be the same ones as mine. What are your two words? If I were to put holiness and love out there, can you say, yeah, I, I can hold on to both of those. You tend to move in one direction or the other. If so, what does that look like for you? You tend to be someone who lives a little bit fearful of God, not fearful in an awe-inspiring way, but fearful in a terrified way, that he's looking over your shoulder and he's waiting to punish you. Are you someone who honestly, if you, were on, if you would say, yeah, I live waiting on the other shoe to drop? Does that recognize this love that he has for you that's adopted you into his family? Romans 8, as a son or a daughter, and this, whole, this spirit of adoption within your heart enables you to say, he's my father, he's my dad. That's what that word Abba means. It's a very personal term. That's Romans 8, 14. Would you say, yeah, I get that. Or do you maybe tend to lean the other way and say, God got a, he made a great choice when he picked me. And so you kind of just do what you want. And you feel like part of the deal is he's got to forgive you. And so you just, you live without any sense of, really honestly, any sense of righteousness or holiness in your life. You feel like you're great just the way you are, and so everybody else should be fine with you too. There's not this sense of Romans 8.29 that God has predestined you to be conformed in the image of, of his son, which means becoming more holy in terms of your character. I don't mean more legalistic, 
I mean less dark and more light? Are you moving in that direction? Do you recognize that's the standard that's been set for you? You've been adopted into this family as a son or a daughter, and now the the challenge and the encouragement has become as much like the Father as you can. Take on the family likeness of holiness. He says, be holy for I am holy. Do you hold on to both of those things well? Do you tend to fall in one direction or the other? If so, I want to encourage you when we take communion to come and just recognizing that and just asking God to give you grace to hold both of those things. They can tend to pull apart. And again, if you emphasize one without the other, you've created a distorted view of God. By His grace, you can hold them both together, recognizing this holy love that is God and that you've been invited into. I'm going to shift here pretty hard. Uh, let me see. Carrie, will you come here? Come on. You, Thompson. I want you to um, read something for me. This is long, and I just didn't want you all to have to hear me read, and Carrie's a good reader. So, not that the rest of you are not good readers. But she is. I'm going to give her a microphone, and she's going to read Psalm 22. It's really long. It's going to be on the screen. And as, you're, as she's reading it, I want you thinking about this psalm in relationship to what we just read in Matthew 27. So Matthew 27 is, here's what happened on the cross. Now, Psalm 22, Jesus quotes from that. That's his first, that's what he says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So as she's reading, I want you in your mind thinking about the words she's reading in relationship to the cross. Thank you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. This is long. It is long. You're not <laughs> even halfway there. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers, and the congregation I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise and the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. 
the poor will eat and be satisfied. They who look to the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever, all the ends of the earth. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. Thanks. So you see there, there's this picture. You probably, as she was reading, you picked up on several things that would remind you of the crucifixion. Pierced hands, pierced feet, clothes being gambled for. This idea, there's a direct quote. They're going to say to me, these people are going to hurl insults at me, and they're going to say, why won't God save him? So there's this picture in Psalm 22. It's, it's what Jesus was experiencing while he was on the cross. Those are the only words Matthew records Jesus saying. There's some other things in Mark, Luke, and John. But in Matthew, that's all we get. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus forsaken is abandoned. Jesus felt he experienced abandonment on the cross. He felt abandoned by his Father. Now you think three years saying, I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. He just said that. That's what they're hanging him for. Because they said, you're the son of God. He said, yeah, you said it. And now, in public, he's saying he's forsaken by the very God. He said, I'm his son. There's a depth of honesty there from Jesus. For some of you, you're experiencing, I'll call it a tricky situation. You don't really know where to put your feet, and you can't find your way forward. It's just stuff is, it's murky. You're, maybe, you're, maybe you're suffering. Maybe you're just struggling. There may be... Those things are not necessarily the same, but you're in this place and you would say, I, I can't really find my footing. I don't really know how I'm supposed to proceed in this, whether it's a relationship or a circumstance. The first thing you need is Matthew 27. You need the facts that say, here's what's going on. That's the newspaper accounts, what you read in the MDJ. Here's what happened. That's Matthew 27. He says, here's what happened. Then you need Psalm 22. That's how is whatever is happening affecting you. That's Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's a glimpse for us into his frame of mind and into his heart. And you need that. So whatever's going on in your life that, that's tricky, I'm using that word, um, that my question for you is, well, one, can you describe it to me? And the second is, well, how is that affecting you? What's that doing for you internally? And you've got to be honest about that. Again, think of the depth of honesty in Jesus to publicly say he feels abandoned and forsaken by the God who he's just spent three years saying, he's my father, and I only do the things that I see him doing. And he's pleased with me. Remember the baptism thing. This is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And now, again, publicly to say he feels cut off from him and that he's experiencing abandonment. Are you that honest? with how whatever it is that's swirling in your life is affecting you. This is a broad generalization. And men tend to stink at this compared to women. For whatever reason, we're not aware. I think it's probably why we lose our hair. We don't tell people what's going on, so our hair just falls out. We're still stressed. We just never talk about it. Are you exper- Can you verbalize, will you, your Psalm 22? Matthew 27 is easy. These are the facts. 
can you get to Psalm 22? These are how those facts are affecting me. This is what I'm experiencing because of that. This is Isaiah 53. This is where we ultimately want to get. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Think about the life and death of Jesus. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, for the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. If you read, here's a slide. This is the, the writers of the New Testament understood Psalm, Isaiah 53 to be speaking about Jesus, his life and his death. These are just some direct quotes. There are other allusions where they're saying this is him. He is the fulfillment of that chapter. So what that does is it provides context and meaning to what we just read about in Matthew 27. So we've got these brutal facts. This one who claimed to be the son of God has been betrayed, He's been arrested, he's been condemned, he's been beaten, and now he's dying. According to the Old Testament, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So what is going on here? And what the writers of the New Testament say is that's what we just read, that's what's going on. That's the meaning underneath all of these circumstances. Without that, you've got nothing. And so for you and for me, when I'm experiencing some difficulty, some tricky circumstance, I need my Matthew 27. I need to know what the facts are. I need Psalm 22. I need to know how those facts affect me. And then I need Isaiah 53. I need to know what, the, what does it mean? Where is God at work in the midst of this? I don't care if he caused it. That's a, it doesn't matter. He uses all circumstances to accomplish his purposes. Whether he's the author of those circumstances or not is irrelevant. What matters is those are my circumstances. And so that becomes the raw material for him to work in me and to work through me. And so the question becomes, God, what are you doing? How does whatever is happening in my life, yes, how does it affect me? And then even more important is what are you, want, what are you wanting to do with it? How are you wanting to use whatever this thing is, whether it's good, bad, indifferent, how are you wanting to use it to make me more like your son or to accomplish your purposes in my community? Here's my example this week. It's trivial. 
I'm coaching, and I'm looking over this way, and I'm feeding this nine-year-old boy a ball, and I look back over this way, and I've got two kids on my team fighting. One little kid's in the fetal position, and I got another kid draped over him, growling like a wolverine, squeezing, punching, and kicking. I've got mama, mama, dad, dad, and lawyer dad all around the field. And I'm thinking, all right, so what's, what's the play here? Nobody's dad is going to pull their son off of anybody. And so I walk out there, and I pick up Wolverine, and he's still growling. And I kind of walk him back, and he's hot, and he's mad. And we get back to the goal, and I say, listen, why don't you just cool off with me a little bit, and we can figure out what's going on. And he growls for 45 or 60 more seconds at nothing in particular, just in general, at the field. All the other boys are kind of wide-eyed going, all right, what are we, what are we, Royal Rumble, what are we doing here at practice? And I go back out to the kid who's in the fetal position and his dad has come over and has left. And, I, and all I say is, what happened? He said, well, I called him an idiot. And I said, why? And he said, I don't like him. He's twice your size, so let's think about whether, okay. So we can work on the tactics of that at some point. So those are my Matthew 27 facts. I've got a kid who called a, Bigger kid, an idiot. The, young, the little kid had been bullying him for the whole practice, apparently, just picking at him. At some point, the big kid lost it, drapes himself over the kid, tries to suffocate him, is growling like a lion, and I pull him off. And I've got, again, mom, 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 dad, dad, lawyer, dad, over here. And I'm, so those are my facts. That's my Matthew 27. I never get past that. I never get past it. Psalm 22, a little bit. What is this doing for me? I'm just thinking, can I quit? Is it, there's a hill. Can I make nine-year-olds run a hill? Like, should I talk to the, I don't know really the response to that. And so I never really, and I absolutely never get to Isaiah 53. I miss the moment. God didn't cause those kids to fight, but it was a chance. This kid who'd been bullied, who was a bigger kid, I didn't say anything to him that was encouraging. I mean, we talked, but. There was, no, there was nothing redemptive about it. I never got to Isaiah 53 to say, God, all right, this is what's happened. What are you saying here? I didn't have time to go fast and pray. I've got 10 nine-year-olds. I've got a coach. But I can say a 10-second prayer on the way back and say, God, what's, what's the thing here? I wasn't tra- I, I, that wasn't part of my thinking. I got stuck in the facts of what was going on. I touched a, the surface of how that was affecting me, I never got to what God was saying. And so I missed it. I missed the chance. There'll be another one because I know those two kids. So I'll have another chance tomorrow. (laughs) But I missed that one. And I don't know where you are with your tricky thing. Do you ever get to the Isaiah 53 where you say, God, what are you saying here? Again, he's not going to tell you you're right and they're wrong. So if that's what you're waiting to hear, you're not going to hear that. What he's going to say is, here's what I'm doing, and here's how I want to use maybe even this unjust situation to do something in you. Or here's how, I want to, here's how I want you to maneuver through this so that I get a whole lot of credit and you don't get any. Or to show this person what grace looks like or love or forgiveness or justice, whatever those things are. But you've you got to walk through all three of those. You can't short-circuit Psalm 22 and go straight to Isaiah 53. You'll, you won't hear God right. If you haven't said to him, this is how this is, uh, is affecting me, then you're not going to hear what his perspective is. You're going to short circuit. You won't be able to. There will be too much noise in your own head, and you're not going to be able to discern what God is saying. But once you get to Psalm 22, you have to get to Isaiah. Well, 
I would strongly encourage you to get to Isaiah 53 as well. Or you're just lost. You just wind up kind of spinning. You're blindly throwing darts and maybe something will hit and maybe it won't. But if you'll, in that moment, and if all you have is a moment, some of you have more time. It's a protracted situation. You can spend more time asking the Lord. But in that, if, if all you've got is 10 seconds on the walk back to the goal, that's enough time to say, give me something to say to this kid or whatever your situation is. So as you're coming forward for communion, if you find yourself in a tricky spot, some of you are fine. You're sailing along and it's wonderful. But for some of you, you're stuck in some ways and you don't really know. You can't, you can't see the path. Can you give me the Matthew 27? Can you give me the Psalm 22? Do you know the Isaiah 53? If you don't, let us pray for you. Nobody up here is going to have a word that says, here's what God is saying to you. That's not what we do. What we are going to do is pray and pray for God to speak to you in a way that you would understand so that you would have some clarity on how to get out of neutral or, and move forward in this situation that you have some sense, maybe not of how it's going to be resolved, but of how God wants to use it to do some things in you or through you. Um, this way we take communion here at Stonebridge. We'll have two stations up here. You'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. Those, there's gluten-free communion over here on this table. If you need that, by all means, may, uh, help yourself. We'll also have prayer teams in the corner. So after you take communion, if there's something you want prayer about, something I said today that stirred something in your heart, or if you have another need, by all means, come forward. Uh, please allow us to pray with you. And then Bo will dismiss us. We'll have this one last kind of song for communion and ministry and Bo will dismiss us when we're done so if you're helping with any of that with communion or with ministry if you'd come forward I'm going to say a prayer and then um, you guys can go ahead and stand and we'll wrap up God we do thank you that you sent your son and we thank you that in the cross we see your character so clearly this this holiness that doesn't wink and blink and at sin but deals with it head on. And this great love that says there's a price to be paid and I'm going to pay it. And I pray if there are any in here this morning who have not said yes to you. That they, they would hear you speaking to them saying come home this morning. Say yes to me as your father. Here's the invitation. I'll take the wrath that you so richly deserve. I'll pay that. In order to then be able to adopt you into my family. God, I pray for those of us who've said yes to you, but we still struggle with your character. I pray that you would deepen our understanding of what it means to love and to serve and to follow a holy God. I pray for any here who are in a tight spot, tricky situation. They don't know the way forward. God, in these next couple of minutes, would you speak clearly to them a word that they would understand at a minimum that would let them know that you're aware of what's going on. And God, our desire is that you would bring perspective that you would allow them to see what you're doing and how they cooperate with you in that circumstance. We're asking you to do all of this work by your spirit. In Jesus' name.